house. No, the right no, house. I did it. Get we want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. sooner trust my life with a loving woman do you take this woman to be yes, your make us the bride a promising future an army of fanatics has attacked a british fortress in the sudan congratulations to you all we are shipping off to war until he questioned i sometimes wonder what a godforsaken desert has to do with her majesty the queen an unjust war it means he's a coward he's the best soldier in the regiment please leave these barracks immediately hello and welcome to the this had oscar buzz podcast the only podcast that is sponsored by powder milk biscuits every week on this had oscar buzz we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty academy award aspirations but for some reason or another it all went wrong the oscar hopes died and we're here to perform the autopsy i am your host chris file and i'm here as always with my sideburned rugby mate joe reed <laughs> uh oi or something more like the four sideburns well by the end of the movie heath ledger has graduated to sideburns which makes it look like he's about to go fight in the Alamo, which is kind of anachronistic because right. the Alamo the has already that he happened. Has become a man, right? Yeah, yes. Sideburns have, uh, and also though a very fancy haircut by the end. Like it is very um, sort of flopsy bangs kind of a thing happening. Framing <laughs> you love his a face. flopsy there's bang. A, there's a little bit of a Rachel, like a like a. It's not a full Rachel, but something's <laughs> something's happening. It's framing his face, right? Those tendrils are sort of framing his face. I mean, listen by the by the very end of this movie, I was, shall we say, ready for a different Heath Ledger look. Sure, we're gonna get into the yes. makeup. We're going to get into yes the brown washing of Heath Ledger in this movie. There's a lot inexplicable. Happening. Well, it's a- explicable in that it becomes sort of baked into the plot of it. But if, if, like a lot of this movie, you would think that the fact that it's happening, that's getting made in 2002, would have maybe led them to some different decisions. <laughs> I don't know. It, it, or just but, don't we'll, make we'll this movie. This is where it. I sort of ultimately land on the four feathers. And so many of my little avenues that I mentally go down, and it all ends up with, like, you didn't need to make this movie for the, like, eight bajillionth time in 2002. Right. Like, ultimately, right. what are what are, what are you what are you doing this for? I mean, the sensitivities of it are even worse, because you can imagine that this was possibly in production, or maybe even right, started production right after, in the wave of 9-11. It's just, like yikes to this movie a little bit um but well, we'll when the very first when the very first version of this movie was made in like 1915 which is like only like 30 years past the part the point where it's set 
it's like, okay, this was an incredibly like old an old fashioned story, and the only way to do it would be to update it with some kind of sense of you know not necessarily modern sensibility but some kind of perspective on it some kind of like it's been a century almost since we've you know first made this movie and we've learned some things and we know some things and this movie just does not the only way it updates it is like oh we'll take three of the hottest young stars of the moment and we'll put them in it you know mm-hmm. whether they fit into this you know uh, the million dynamic or not the roles yeah. themselves etc yeah. i mean this was something that was present in the reviews including roger ebert's review for the movie that it's like this movie is kind of perspectiveless at a time that like begs for you to have some point of view and even some reviews and ebert's yeah. pointed out that it's like shikar kapoor who uh at least in Ebert's review notes that he's of Indian descent, that I am not sure. Yes. Um, okay, fantastic. Like, maybe that's, he's someone who could have a perspective on this, but like, has no perspective in the evident in the movie, at least. And it's like, maybe if he does, he actually likes the British military or like British imperialism. <laughs> That's certainly the only thing you could come out of this movie thinking, because in its lack of lack of critique of the British Empire, or like the most cursory critique, really, while still upholding kind of everything about it, that it's so puzzling. It's so deeply puzzling. And the fact that bookending this movie for Shekhar Kapoor were the two Elizabeth movies. And those have really been the only yeah. movies that he's made up until this thing, this uh, rom-com that he's got coming out next year with Lily James. And it's called what's love got to do with it, but it is not, um, uh, it's it not a not remake. A Tina Turner story in any way. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it reminded me of, I remember sort of getting taught in school when we were taught about things like the Revolutionary War. And this is a thing that is backed up through movies like The Patriot and, you know, other sort of things, which is that the reason why the Americans were able to defeat the British, or one of the reasons why, is that the Brits were so sort of stodgy in their war tactics that they could never anticipated like the more modern warfare, the more sort of, you know, less stand in a line and fire your muskets kind of thing. And Mm -hmm. as one man falls, there's someone behind to step forward and take his place, you know? Right. Well, and, and it's one of those things where if that's your takeaway, that really kind of takes away the necessity to look at things like, was the British Empire right in its, you know, in its actual existence? Mm-hmm. Like, was, and it, and it kind of takes away the need to take a critical eye towards colonialism in general. And, and that the British ultimately were, it wasn't a tactical, like, this wasn't because the, 
the bottom line for all those things feels like, oh, the British lost because they were stuffy. And that's the stereotype that we've decided to assign the British as Americans. And I was like, I can't believe that in like 2002, this movie kind of adopts the same thing where it's just like, oh, those British, they fell for those sneaky foreigners who, you know, pretended to wear their red coats and whatever. And if only the British were more, you know, modern thinking tacticians or whatever. And it's just like, oh my God, we're not, we're honestly going to make this movie and not talk about the you know the wrongness of evils of empire yeah 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 it's a, not a good movie <laughs> i had seen it before <laughs> had you movie. seen it before however i had not seen this before i saw this thing in the theater wow i was very excited for this movie i mean so okay so you were excited for this movie and i feel like knowing us and the people we are i think that's probably because this movie got the prime september slot in the ew fall movie preview probably one of the big reasons yeah so at this point in theaters because it was in and out very quickly in theaters and at this point i was i would imagine so i had just graduated college i was still working at my col at the library at my college they sort of kept me on because i had no (laughs) no direction whatsoever uh after college so I was also, though, I was the biggest almost famous fan. So I was, and this was Kate Hudson's (laughs) next movie. She had not made a movie since Mm -hmm. Almost Famous. And so, and I had also really loved American Beauty was the other thing. So like, and I really loved 10 Things I Hate About You. So like, by this point, the, the casting of this movie, I was so, so, so super excited for this thing. And the trailer made it look very sort of sweeping and epic. And Shakar Kapoor was the director of Elizabeth. Like, the pedigree for this thing was through the roof. Mm-hmm. And it was pretty heavily advertised. And I was also sort of had begun my, you know little Oscar watching career. 2002 was a big year for following the Oscar race for me. And Forefathers definitely had a lot of buzz. It was this very prestige-heavy epic that was going to premiere in the fall. And so I definitely saw it in the theater. And I remember at the time being kind of nonplussed about the whole thing. And by the end of the movie, had moved on to other things that I was enthusiastic about. But I think back at the, but even back then, I was probably giving this movie more credit than it deserved. And watching it now, I was like, oh, no, this is a bad movie. This is kind of a thoroughly bad yeah. movie. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even so, you, you mentioned those stars who are all young and following up big things. I mean, Heath Ledger, we had seen more of than the other two, because, like, you have A right. Knight's Tale, you have The Patriot, you have, um, what was his other 2001 right. movie? Uh, Monster's Ball, even, where it's just like, yes. you get this kind of hint that he is actually going to be a serious, like, a- indie mm-hmm. actor or yes. whatever. But this is the moment when they're trying to make Heath Ledger a young, hot movie star. And it's like... Mm -hmm. All three of these, this is another thing that there's, like, no perspective on whatsoever, and I thought it was really going to be kind of that movie as it started. They're all so fucking young in this movie. Yes. And it it really made me think that, like, this would be about some type of, like, perils of youth, and these are the people we send off to war who don't, like, really know what life is yet or something. And it's not even that at all. And it's like, these could be actors that are in their thirties instead of these, you know, really young actors. Yeah. Well, ultimately the story kind kind of of... murderers row of 
British actors we would see in character roles elsewhere in the coming years. Yes. All of them gifted, gilded even, with the most massive unfortunate sideburns. (laughs) It is true. But also, I think the fact that this... The pedigree for this movie, where you have, you know, Robert Richardson cinematography, which is like undoubtedly one of the highlights, if not the biggest highlight of the movie. You know, it's one of those things where you sort of question yourself and you're like, am I impressed by this because it's big sort of desert landscapes and I'm just falling for the cinematography equals landscapes trick? And yet it really is those battle scenes especially i was more captivated by that big battle scene that i probably should have been and i think a big part of the reason is the way it was filmed right well i mean it's impressive it's all you know this is just as the lord of the rings movies are coming out and using yes. that level of like battle cgi that would come the become the norm for like even a straightforward war epic like this you know yeah. where it's like they actually had all those extras they had all those fucking horses and it's like I was actually shocked to see how low the budget was for this movie. It was in like the $30 million range, like 30 to 40. And I mean, like I do think it speaks well of Robert Richardson that this movie does look as expensive as it does. Um, Yeah. But then again, like all of the sequences in like, the wartime look incredible, but then I found all of the stuff that's taking place in Britain looks kind of bad and looks kind of cheap. Um, yeah, you're not wrong. So I don't know. Certainly like, yeah, all the... those sort of f- slow motion shots of like feathers falling <laughs> from envelopes that we get, which is quite a, quite a few of them <laughs> that we get, are, are, are I think the ones we're supposed to be very uh, impressed by or whatever. Yeah. I'm guessing that this is a movie that not many of our listeners have seen or might even be aware of. So we should maybe get into the plot description before we start unpacking too much of this movie. Yeah, good call. All right, let's do it then. Listeners, we are here to talk about The Four Feathers, a movie we have talked about since the infancy of this podcast of doing, we are mm-hmm. finally doing this movie. Directed by Shakar Kapoor, written by Hossein Amini and Michael Schiffer. Starring the one and only Heath Ledger, Wes Bentley, Kate Hudson, Jaiman Unsu, Michael Sheen, Rupert Penry Jones, Chris Marshall, and Alex Jennings. The movie was a TIFF gala um that was its premiere and then it opened wide and promptly bombed september 20th of 2002 yes indeed joe reed are you ready to give us a sprawling and brief 60 second yes. plot description <laughs> yeah be prepared last time I, I i came in under the wire for plot description time i will not be doing that again this time so, impossible uh, an impossible task but you will do your yeah. best Joe Reed, your 60-second plot description for The Four Feathers starts now. 
All right, it's 1884. The British Empire is very much the thing, and the thing that all the best little English boys do is join army with their friends. Heath Ledger is Harry, who just graduated to army with his four friends, Wes Bentley, Michael Sheen, the fuckboy from Love Actually, and the other one who is hot, and has just become engaged to Kate Hudson. The Queen Victoria, then Queen Victoria, or the Prime Minister, or whoever the fuck was in charge of telling the British which dark-skinned populations to subjugate that year, gives the order for Harry's regiment to be deployed to the Sudan to quell a Muslim uprising, and Harry, having just gotten this pretty new fiancé, is like, yeah, I'd rather not, and resigns his commission. This gets him declared a coward, and all his friends except Wes Bentley and his faithless hussy of a fiancé, I'll send him symbolic white feathers, which is 1880s British slang for right poofter or whatever, and then the British go off to fight in Africa, where they're met by Shekhar Kapoor, setting the world record for ethnic wailing on a soundtrack. Meanwhile, Harry looks around at his life of being shunned with no fiancé anymore, and is like, this blows, so he travels to Africa on his own, and goes undercover with the Sudanese in what is perilously close to brownface, along with a very helpful Jaiman Hansu, to try and help his friends, and when Harry sends Jaiman Hansu ahead with a warning they're too racist to heat it and they end up getting ambushed by the Mahdi fighters in a siege where Wes Bentley gets blinded and Michael Sheen gets captured and the fuckboy from love actually gets killed and then the reigning British fuck off back to Surrey or wherever and Harry gets himself put in prison in order to rescue Michael Sheen but they barely get out alive and then it's back to England and blind Wes Bentley and Kate Hudson are now engaged but then Wes feels Harry's face and is like you were the one who helped me and you should take my fiance and and since Kate Hudson feels really bad about sending Harry that feather she and Harry end up engaged and that's what passes for a happy ending in the British Empire the end only it was like a two-minute over time, which okay. is, uh, you know, maybe this movie is a little bit closer to like thirty minutes longer than it needs to be. Um, yeah, yeah, it's a long movie. It's what two, pretty... two and fifteen. Yeah, like two ten. Yeah, yeah. Okay, feels like four ten. <laughs> yeah, I watched it in over the span of two days. I watched a little bit last night, and I watched a little bit this morning. It must have taken you a lot of energy to, you know, get that second watch in. Well, you know, I'm dedicated to my craft, so we'll do it. Plus, you know, I mean, again, you're looking at Heath Ledger, so uh, it's not too bad. Even you're though, okay, at we Heath should... Ledger in brown face for most of the movie, though. It is very, very, very uh, close to brownface, is what it is. It's they they it's sort of understandable plot it up. that he would have a tan. But it is truly like he might as well be playing, uh, I don't know, like he's playing a character of that descent, you know, like. Well, but I mean, in the plot of the story, he has to find a way to go undercover, right? So it's sort of this, this combination of like, you know essentially like putting like rubbing sand on his face or whatever and dirt on his face and then also like the fact that he is in the sun for all of this time or whatever so like it there is at least a plot justification for it i I kind of don't know how you can tell this story of this british officer going undercover with these people without doing that because then you look at it and it's just like what are they all stupid they you know this white guy's in their midst and nobody knows about it you know so it's it's one of those things where ultimately like the solution to this problem would have been to not make the movie. And, exactly. and maybe that was an option that people maybe should have thought about more, uh, given the audiences and out. critics but, clearly thought that was the better option. Yeah. Yeah. So yes. Yeah, so you do. The upshot is you are looking at uh, a borderline brown face Heath Ledger for most of this movie, which is unfortunate. I think there are many more offensive things in this movie to worry about that uh, right. I don't want to linger on it too much, but that is 
definitely the case. I think the most offensive thing about this movie is the way that it gives lip service to this idea that the British should not be a colonialist empire. And yet, after giving that very, very, very thin bit of lip service, the rest of the movie is absolutely, oh my god, I hope these poor British boys are able to get out of this situation where these like marauding 100%. hordes of dark-skinned people are coming at them from all sides, and they're they're absolutely being portrayed as the enemy, and they are absolutely the ones that you are hoping get defeated. And if the audience is even given half a second to step back, especially from a more modern perspective, you're just like, wait a second, who are we rooting for, and why are we rooting for them, and why are the British here in the first place, and why don't they just fuck off? They don't need to be in the Sudan at all. And... Uh, uh, it's... Especially that this comes a year after 9-11, and we know how the American culture was shifting for the worse at that time. It yeah. just casts yeah. a sheen over this movie that's so ugly. And, like, the movie's not good, so it didn't succeed, but, like, it's almost like it's surprising that this movie didn't succeed with the type of oorah, like, Americans. Well, it's not the, – the the problem with this movie is it's not it's not actively jingoistic. It is very passively accepting of the evident truth that you are just going to – that the British are the protagonists in the story, right? Right. Where it's it's – and I think that's almost more insidious of just sort of this like the default is – well, the British are your protagonists and they're the ones we're going to root for. And the thing that annoyed me the most is the story gives you a little bit of a creak of an opening into, well, this character could be resigning from the army because of... And I mean, this also opens the door to problematic things, too. If he's resigning from the army because he has is a conscientious objector and he doesn't believe in the British Empire and he doesn't feel like they should be in Africa, then you run into white savior problems, right? But the other side of that is, that's not what this movie is. This movie is essentially just like... No, he's a conscientious, conscientious objector because he's so in love with Kate Hudson. He cannot leave her side to well, go to war. The closest thing this movie comes to me relating to it is when it almost says outright that he's like, I don't want to go to war because who would want to go to war? That seems bad and and right. dumb. And I'm like, yeah, like that to me is like, that's all, you know, I'm on your side for that one. I wouldn't want to go to fucking war either. But the movie absolutely declines to take a moral stand, even though there's ample opportunity mm-hmm. within this story to take a moral stand, and it doesn't do it. I mean, like, it could almost be the type of movie that's the rote movie that, like, does all of the that moralizing, even if it hits, like, snags along the way that you expect. And mm. it could be boring for that. But instead, this movie is, like, boring and objectionable. Um, yeah. It's not the same thing. It's not a one-to-one comparison. But you look at something like Lost City of Zed, and that does it it does this kind of thing better which is interrogates mm-hmm. the motivations for why these young men or sort of i guess maybe like you know 
whatever, like men in their prime or whatever, would choose to go trample into foreign lands like they own the place. And the dangers of that and the, you know, sort of hubris of that. And and that's, again, it's not a one-to-one comparison. They're both different stories. But I think there are ways to make this movie that are much more ambiguous and that feel much more, you know, questioning of the inherent truth and rightness of the British having a position in Africa at all. Mm-hmm. I don't know. We could talk about that aspect of it all day, and maybe it's probably best if we move on. Well, um, and you, at a certain but, point, you kind of run in circles, and you're doing it for a movie that really just like doesn't exist on the face of the earth. Um, I think of, it's yeah. also kind of awkward. Uh, this this type of thing normally doesn't bother me, but you're also watching that play out with all of these leads who aren't British, um, right? So right. it feels like I a number of reviews I read for this movie called the movie Dress Up, and that is yeah. so not off base. Um, no, unfortunately, it's not. Even, like, Heath Ledger with, like, the brown face of it makes it feel even more like a dress-up. I have no idea why Kate Hudson coming off uh, I mean, like, very quickly after her Oscar win, she pivoted towards, like, romantic lead. So, like, maybe that's what makes sense. But, like, she's playing kind of a nothing character coming off of, like, becoming a megastar off of playing kind of this... Uh... I mean, Penny Lane's not an enigma, but, like, Penny yeah, she, Lane's so kind fascinating of and, like, magnetic yeah. and yes, filled She's with barely life, in this but also movie. Imprint, other people imprinting their uh, impression of her onto yes. her. And she's playing off of that. And, like, this is just nothing. She's barely in this movie, and when she is, she's not a character who you dial into whatsoever because her motivations are so like dependent on where the story needs to go. Why does she end up, you know, sending him that feather? Well, because the thing is called the four feathers and you need a fourth feather. And, (laughs) and you know what I mean? Like it doesn't really, is is she super into war? Is she super into, you know, propriety is she's a nationalist, right? So it's like, well, then why are we rooting for her to be with for him Mm -hmm. to be with her? Right. Why do they end up together at the end? It's crazy that she doesn't still just end up with Wes Bentley at the end. She should be with Wes Bentley. They are more suited for each other and that they are both very, very into uh, imperialism. That's a thing they can talk about, uh, you know, over tea and whatnot is how great imperialism is and and uh, and whatnot. I don't know. I don't know where she and, and Heath Ledger are going to, you know, at some point it's going to probably come up where he's like, hey, remember when you sent me that feather and made me feel guilty enough to go and nearly die in the desert for, you know, no good reason. I, I'm not sure. Maybe more people would have shown up to this movie if it was How to Lose a Guy in Four Feathers. <laughs> so, you know, the story is, and again, I've seen this in enough places that I think if it were untrue, somebody probably would have debunked it by now. But the story is that she was going to be offered the role of Mary Jane in the first Spider-Man movie, in Raimi's first and Spider-Man movie. And she turned movie. it down for this, And right? she turned it down because she was already committed to doing this, and she couldn't do that one, which is one of the like all-time... probably. 
Or something, yeah. But it's one of those just like, you know, fork in the road kind of moments. If Kate Hudson Mm -hmm. is Mary Jane in those Spider-Man movies, what is her career now? And, you know, she went in a very different direction. Obviously, The Four Feathers was not that direction. I think that was like one one period costume drama, and and that was probably enough. Um, And then she sort of began pivoting towards rom-coms and... There is nothing that America hates more than an unsuccessful rom-com uh, performer. And when those didn't go well, I think there was a lot of weird resentment towards her. I think a lot of the same resentment, weirdly, that like Jennifer Lopez got throughout the aughts, where it was like, uh-huh. ugh, we hate these rom-coms. Go away. You're bad. You're terrible. If all of a sudden, if you are, if you are good in rom-coms, you are Julia Roberts, your Reese Witherspoon, your Sandra Bullock, right? You're elevated. We love you. You're on magazine covers. We care about your romantic life. Uh, all of the flowers sort of fall at your feet. If you are in romantic comedies that don't work and, and people don't like, which are probably not super your fault. It's almost certainly the fault of a bad script or bad directing or a bad con- concept or whatever. But if you're in bad rom-coms, oh boy, oh boy, do we hate you, Kate Hudson, Jennifer Lopez, Katherine Heigl, like you know. Okay, but it's also true. It like the tides always turn on people because people, we as audiences are so full of shit because like the successful names you just mentioned, like you mentioned in the positive in this circumstance, also had audiences turn against them. Uh, Yes, and for rom-coms. I think that's true, but I think if you're in enough good ones, they're all that audience is always going to want for you to come back and do another good one, which is what we've seen with Julia Roberts. And, and even though Reese Witherspoon right. hasn't gone back to rom-coms, she was, you know, the audience is willing to go on the roller coaster ride of the comeback. And ultimately, like, Jennifer Lopez did not rebound by going back and doing good rom-coms again. She just, like, she pivoted into how other things. dare you slight marry me this way <laughs> i still can i tell you i still haven't seen marry me i know we've talked about this don't think i don't resent you for this is okay here's my question about marry me because i waited i wanted to see it with people and ultimately circumstances you know conspired against that and so then it's like okay well am i just gonna like watch this on peacock alone with like you know my sadness or whatever like that's a possibility i know but i could not for the life of me in different movies at tiff but i will watch this movie in our airbnb i mean but here's my question is i could not for the life of me figure out whether people liked this movie or not because the reception to it was so people wanted to like not talk about it. I feel like people were like avoiding the subject and were like when, you know, the subject of Mary Me would come up once everybody had seen it, people would like avert their eyes and whatever and not really talk about it. And it didn't sound like people liked it all that much. Or if, cause if they had, it would have been like, remember how people loved Mamma Mia too and like still are talking about that movie? Uh, people didn't talk about Mary Me like the week after it came out. And so I got well, the sense that it was just disappointing and bad. I do think some of that has to do with the fact that most people watch it on Peacock and like streaming movies just do not have the shelf life that literally any other movie has. Um, what I will say is like it succeeds modestly, like putting it up against like a Mamma Mia 2 where you're talking about something that like makes people happy but is ridiculous, like. I, mm-hmm. I think that's putting Marry Me at an unfair advantage. But at every step, Marry Me is absurd. 
and ridiculous, but okay. I had a wonderful time with it. Like it's right. it's just about the vibe. Like the uh, being asked to root for a romance between Jennifer Lopez and Owen Wilson, you have got to be fucking kidding me. But I did at every step, and like it's so silly. Like it, 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 every plot turn in that movie is bug nuts, but it. I yeah. had a very nice time. I have no complaints right. about Marry Me. I love that we detoured into talking about Marry Me in our Four Feathers episode. When we, in about a couple of months, are like, what episode did we talk about Marry Me in? We're never going to be able to remember it. We're never <laughs> going to be able to follow those breadcrumbs back to Four Feathers. <laughs> Not for the life of me. Um, okay, but to, back to your point, though, that you feel like people are welcomed back into a rom-com. I, what I'm guessing or i'm asking is you think kate hudson would not be welcomed back into a rom-com i mean it hasn't happened it hasn't happened yet i'm very happy to be proven wrong on that but like i don't know if there is enough goodwill for kate hudson out there beyond like lunatics like us you know what i mean i don't feel right. like uh, the misanthropic the f- gaze Right, exactly. Like, what is the thing that the mainstream really holds in their heart for Kate Hudson? Like, do they do they like How to Lose a Guy in Ten Days? I don't like. I think that's probably her most successful of the rom coms that she did. And like, I don't think people really like that movie very much. Um, I mean, I don't think that that's a rom com that gets mentioned all that much. Like when people talk about rom coms that they like wish were still. Right. A thing, you know, that's not one that people trot out as an example. But I do think, generally speaking, the women that I know do, you know, consider that, you know, a nice movie to revisit, whatever. Okay. Um, it's I on TV would... all the time, so. There you, you know. go. Um, if it's on TV all the time, that must mean that it's pulling in people on TV yeah. to watch it. Right. Um, right. Yeah. I kind of want to see her play weirdos. Uh, the other... Yeah. What, like a week ago, remember the... Um, uh, the Anna Lily Amanpour movie that was at Venice last year that I was like, Kate Hudson was supposed to be doing some weird shit in this movie. What happened to this movie? Because I want to see Kate Hudson be weird. We will see what she is doing in Glass Onion, the Knives Out yes. movie. I'm very excited for that. Yes. I feel like the hope, our hope for what Kate Hudson is doing is that it's going to be along the lines of what Tony Collette was doing yep. in the original. 100%. Yep. Um, 100%. In that it's like, you know, maybe skewering something that we kind of align Kate Hudson to. And maybe this could be yeah. an avenue towards her, you know, playing something a little more offbeat. I feel like she is a performer yep. who Penny Lane is more offbeat, I think, than it is mainstream. And yeah. She quickly got pigeonholed into a like mainstream rom com performer that ultimately mm-hmm. makes sense, but was never going to give her the type of career if she was working with. I don't know. I don't even have maybe an example, but and like this is a bad example, but like what if Kate Hudson had been like a David O. Russell performer, right? You know, that's like, not a bad example though, because. You could see her thriving in roles like, like in a movie like I Heart Huckabees, right? Or in something yeah. like, you know, even like as the sister in Joy or something like that. Like, I feel like there are ways in which she could have succeeded. And let's be fair. 
Uh, Cinema Italiano is more weirdo than it is, you know. Yes, of course. Yeah, we all appreciate it for that fact. The only, yeah, the only things we like about Nine are the weirdo stuff because everything else was like unbearable to watch. And right, the the earnest, sincere stuff of Nine is not good. Right. Um, or even like the sincere stuff that like we can twist and say that it's weirdo, like Fergie. Um, oh, the Fergie stuff is full weirdo. Like I, I, you know, I can't imagine right, making. Right that movie and not realizing that what you're doing is full weirdo. She's playing cast, like a vampire empress. You cast Fergie. Like that's, that's the biggest giveaway right there. You know what I mean? So. All right. All right. Let's move on from Kate Hudson though, for a second, because she is kind of barely in this movie of the three leads. Um, let's maybe work our way up. So Wes Bentley at this point, had he done anything big between American beauty and this? Does soul survivors count? I mean, <laughs> that's ultimately the question, right? He was in that movie, The Claim, that I never saw, which was this, like, Western, this Michael Winterbottom Western with him and Sarah Polly and Nastasia, or, uh, not Nastasia, Nastasia Kinski is in it, but Mila Jovovich is the one on the, uh, on the poster for it that uh, I remember at least. I might have to catch up to this for my Sarah Polly rewatch ahead of Toronto. I mean, it was it was during that time, that sort of post-Go era, where they were like, oh, like, Sarah Polly is part of this generation of young, exciting talent. I guarantee you she was on one of those Vanity Fair young Hollywood covers at some point, because, like, they were definitely trying to put her in that, um, in that vibe, you know what I mean? In that, in that, uh, in that fraternity, sorority of people, um... Other than that, after American Beauty, you're right. It was Soul Survivors and then this. So, like, he had been, I think, even at the time with American Beauty, the sort of, like, the plastic bag thing became a little bit of a of a joke. And Yeah, I think Wes Bentley kind of suffered from becoming a punchline, even if he, like... I think he was BAFTA nominated for that performance. So it's not like everybody was treating him like the punching bag of the movie, but there was enough jokes around his character and the plastic bagness of it all that I do think it maybe hurt his career as a young performer. My resistance to going back and watching American Beauty is keeping me from being able to sort of reevaluate what that performance was because I do feel like there's a strong chance that he's better than we remember him because we only remember the plastic yeah. bag of it and I I've never thought that Wes Bentley is a bad actor. He went away in a way that feels like you know young actors who weren't what we thought, you know. I mean no shade to people like let's say like Shane West and Chris Klein and sort of like that people in that, you know, in Mm -hmm. that generation. But like West Bentley kind of faded away like that. And I think with, with, we tend to just sort of chalk it up to like, well, they didn't have it. You know what I mean? They were sort of flashes in the pan. And I think West Bentley was, and is, I think a really good actor. And I, I don't know if he, like he's kept working, right? He was in interstellar. Mm -hmm. He was in, uh, um oh what was that I mean he was in that one Hunger Games movie he was in or the first one I believe um he's in Knight of Cups he's in Pete's Dragon he's in uh the very good Pete's Dragon 
I don't remember him in Mission Impossible Fallout, but uh, or do I remember him in Mission I Impossible remember Fallout? So we we are in the minority of, or at least like we are not the cool kids about the the Mission Impossible movies. I can never right. remember a thing that happened. I remember Angela Bassett saying that's the job, and I remember Henry Cavill shaking out his his fists of fury, but that's shaking about out it. them titties. Um, <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, it's that and the set pieces, right? And the greatest set pieces of the Mission Impossible movies are Angela Bassett saying that's the job and yeah. Henry Cavill, like, punching out his man boobs. <laughs> uh, he did, by the way, you were right about the BAFTA nomination for uh, Wes Bentley for American Beauty. He was also got a national board American review. Beauty had an insane number of, like, acting nominations. They nominated, like, six people from that movie at BAFTA. Yeah, well, that's because, like, in general, like, Thora Birch was usually overlooked and, like, Mina Suvari was popping up in certain places. But, like, yeah, all of those actors got some kind of bit of recognition in one place or another. I think Allison Janney even got a nomination somewhere or another um, for that movie. That that cast was really, really well regarded. I really should just go bite the bullet and, and watch it again and... See where I stand with it. But um, Bentley in The Four Feathers ultimately isn't able to overcome the kind of structural problems with the movie. He's given the task of being like, he's the one friend who doesn't send Heath Ledger the feather because he believes in him. And yet he's also like clearly gunning for Kate Hudson after she and Heath Ledger break up. And... There's just a lot of like cutaways to like him looking conflicted, right? Right. And but ultimately doesn't get enough. It's not a particularly interesting part. It's like the Toby Maguire role of the it of is this cast where it's just like okay, I mean like maybe I don't know. I, this is again no shade to Wes Bentley, but like maybe to make this role interesting, you need someone who is like super hot, like. Yeah. In the way that, like, roles like this work in other movies, but, like, usually they come across, like, wet blankets, hence being a Tobey Maguire role, but, like, right. it's someone who's really hot and is, like, interesting to watch be hot. Yeah. It's at least passable. I mean, Wes Bentley's not a not-good-looking guy, you know what exactly. I mean? Like, I don't want to, like, exactly. he's... Yeah. Um, I just think, ultimately, this movie puts so much screen time on this regiment of british soldiers like that big battle in the center of this movie gets so much time and we're i think we're asked to invest so much in the sort of great friendship of this group of lads or whatever and it's like i don't feel like the movie has done enough to make us care about the friendship between him and michael sheen and the guy from love actually and the other one and it's like uh, so much time is spent away from Heath Ledger and on that, you know, siege or whatever. And it's like, I ultimately don't care whether Heath Ledger goes back and rescues Michael Sheen from the prison. And I ultimately am not as, I think we're supposed to be sort of like devastated when the Love Actually guy gets killed on the battlefield. And right. I, I I don't know. I don't know if they've built that up. Colin got to a that sex point. is the one you're talking about from Love Actually. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um so yeah, I think they've got a lot of talent in this cast, and yet 
I'm I'm not sure I invest in that that group of friends. No, not at all. Even like Michael Sheen, they all first of all look like babies, and this is a yeah. year before Love Actually, and Colin God of Sex looks like a baby compared to <laughs> he does how he does. It I mean, he Love does Actually. in Love Actually as well. He's supposed to be you know this barely twenty something who's got ideas of himself. Yeah, right. Uh, that character in Love Actually fully would be like TikTok famous, right? Yes. Awful. Definitely. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, Michael Sheen, though. Michael Sheen is like 85% sideburns in this movie. Yes, It looks he very is. silly. Um, and yet baby-faced. Yeah. He would be in the Underworld movies as of the next year, right? I think the first Underworld I, movie is I'm 03. pretty sure he considers this an Underworld movie. <laughs> it's, a, it's the Underworld prequel. Uh, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's true. Well, he's, um, like, bearded in those movies, right? I've only seen a production still. I know I would probably like the Underworld movies, and I just never sit down to watch them. I've only seen the first one. It's not bad. I'll say that. I haven't seen the other ones, but the first one's not bad. Um, uh, entertaining enough. Michael Sheen also would be only a few years away from... Did he Did he actually get snubbed for being Tony Blair in The Queen? Yeah. Or did oh, he yeah. get the nomination? He ne- he's never been Oscar nominated. Ever. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. But like in that movie, he still looks like he's 40 years old, handsome, but 40 years old, you know, and yeah, this he looks like he's 12. Um Yes. West Bent Okay, looping back to West Bentley. Yes. He does like work regularly now though. Yes. And it'll be things yeah. like I don't think he's on a cop show, but things like cop shows, you know. Well, he's on Yellowstone right now is the big thing. Oh, so, boy. like, it's one of those things where it's, like, hugely popular show that I don't watch and nobody I know really watches. So he is succeeding. You know what I mean? He had been on a few American Horror Story seasons. Yeah. He sort of became, um, you know, one of the favored uh, recurring people in that. And, in fact, I think the one season he's, like, one of the main characters in the Hotel. He's, like, one of the main guys. Um but like yeah, so like he's doing really well for himself in Yellowstone, and yet I have no idea of knowing whether he's the you know is he one of the people's favorites in that show? Is he not? Is he somebody who you know is is being very impressive? I only ever really hear about Costner and Kelly Riley on that show, and ultimately I hear more about how successful Yellowstone is than anything about actual yellowstone it's the only story i ever hear as you know like eight however many million people watch that thing every year most popular show in america yeah right 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 (laughs) and this like with this tone of like it's the most popular show in america why don't you watch it fag like that kind of thing was just like okay sorry sorry america (laughs) um I, I am too busy watching Top Chef, Drag Race, and P Valley. Straight person, <laughs> right? Right. It does feel like all, all those articles about how many people watch Yellowstone always have a tinge of judgment to them, where it's like, "Yes, Dad, sorry, I'm not watching Yellowstone." Like, whatever. Um, I should say that my dad doesn't watch Yellowstone. Come on, come on now. He's got. Or I mean, like SVU I've also seen the like the tone of like, "Can you believe this shit?" Like. This thing you've never heard of is actually wildly popular. 
That's how I felt about when I first discovered what TikTok was. <laughs> yeah, that's the other end of it. Whereas just like, also, no, like, I do not know. I TikTok is none of my business and neither is Yellowstone. And that's, that's all I have to say about that. Yeah. Right. Like you see these like variety articles about like super famous TikTok star is dead or super famous TikTok star signs with CAA. And it's like, who? That's a real range of human experiences, Chris. Either <laughs> you've either signed with CAA or you're dead. Like, okay. Uh, it's the TikTok <laughs> generation for you, I guess. Um, I guess this he was in an episode about me and TikTok. Uh, Wes Bentley was in that Zac Efron DJ movie that I never saw with the, that the other catfish sure. guy directed. Wes Bentley is conceivable as like Zac Efron's dad. Dad, God, we're so fucking old. Can you imagine? Wes Bentley, my contemporary, essentially. I bet you he is pretty close to my age. <laughs> he was two. He's two years older than I am. Year and a half older than I am. No, two years older than I am. I'm not going to give myself. I'm. I'm not going to give myself that extra half a year of youth. Then again, Zac Efron is conceivable from being 20 years old to being 40 years old. Yeah, so we'll see. Zac. All right, we'll see what Sean Durkin does for Zac Efron. Uh, let's move on to Heath Ledger. I love Heath Ledger. This is the thing. We only have a handful of Heath Ledger Same. movies. We have a finite resource now of Heath Ledger movies. And it does kind of bum me out that one of them is a movie that's like full bad and I can't recommend it to anybody. I don't think he's bad in this. He's not great. But this movie kind of like bumps up against what limitations he had at that moment in his career. I think it mm-hmm. asks of him to you know, sell some story that, like, I'm not going to be into. And yet, there are moments where I'm like, yeah, that's the Heath Ledger that we would end up getting for the next, you know, five years. Right. Well, he's at... This is a period where he was being pigeonholed into, like, leading male movie star. Yeah. In a way that, like, seems like it makes sense for him, but it always felt like... And it's probably because, you know, the material isn't enough, you know, and he's worth a little more. I know A Knight's Tale has its fans, but like... I love A Knight's Tale. I think A Knight's Tale's great. Right, right. Like, fun movie, but like, it was expected to be bigger than it was, and partly because he was being platformed to be not like the leading male character actor that he would become, you know, contemporaries of like some of the greats that we consider now. And he would have been, um, among them. Uh, like he was supposed to be like romantic leading man, you know, yeah. in a, in a way that never quite sat. Right. Right. And so the time in and between, even I do think Knight's tale as fun as it is, is still a little square peg and round hole. Yeah. Um, this point in his career, this sort of post Knight's Tale thing, is a little bit of a to you know pardon the pun in this case, wandering the desert kind of era for him, where they they are struggling to place him in a context that really works for him. He does the Australian historical uh, epic, maybe ish Ned Kelly, him and uh, and Orlando Bloom. And that's where he meets Naomi Watts, and they get together. And that one doesn't really do a whole lot, especially in the States. I don't know if it's one of those things that is like 
more popular in Australia or whatever. And then he also that same year does The Order, which is that sort of supernatural drama with uh, uh, Shannon Sossaman. And Mm -hmm. that one is kind of a flop or at least like doesn't do what I think they want him to. He's a supporting character in Lords of Dogtown that I remember people, the Catherine Hardwick movie, that I remember people thinking fondly of him, but like that's not really sold. He is the most famous person in that cast when that movie comes out. And so he's definitely like part of the trailer and he's sort of the the biggest Mm -hmm. name in that cast, but it's not like that movie doesn't become the like the next big Heath Ledger thing. I think the thing that I remember being the precursor that started people thinking like Heath Ledger might actually be a really great actor was the Brothers Grimm, where he's playing in the, you know, it's this Terry Gilliam movie and he's opposite Matt Damon, who's a much bigger star than him at this point. And he's playing the quirkier of the two. It's this kind of like, you know, mm-hmm. uh, kind of horror comedy kind of a thing, a uh, gothic comedy. And he's really, really good. He's the more like bumbling Jeffrey right. Rush-esque one. But he also has a surprising amount of pathos in it, and he's you're you're surprisingly uh, connected to him emotionally watching that movie. And it's not a great movie, but it's a pretty it's an okay movie. And he's absolutely the highlight of it. And I remember walking out of that, and I knew by that point that was already a 2005 release, and Brokeback Mountain was on the way later that year. But I remember thinking like, oh, like this this kind of makes sense that Heath Ledger would be the lead actor in this Ang Lee movie coming out that's supposed to be this really big thing. And and then he and then Brokeback Mountain comes out. And then his entire the entire conception of him as an actor and a celebrity changes right then. Like immediately. I mean uh th- I mean this is just where it gets like sad yeah. to talk about. Yeah. I think um, because like we know like how like it, it it was genuinely exciting moment where it's like we've seen him go through these things that weren't quite working, weren't really serving him as an actor. But we see what the promise is and it gets activated in real time and, uh, you know, takes off from there and kind of skyrockets. And of course, it leads to the Joker and uh, you know and you know we lost so much and of course like his loved ones obviously lost more but it's just sad and like it it, it is the type of performance you know there was something about brokeback mountain where it's like oscars like biased towards like younger men you know and what they're fulfilling and like philip seymour hoffman was definitely one of those performers that was like as soon as they are nominated they are absolutely winning and that proved to be the case um and of course like he loses for brokeback mountain wins for philip seymour hoffman who also has this you know tragic trajectory so they as two incredible performers are also tied in my mind and it's just like yeah Diving into a soup of sadness. The thing with Philip Seymour Hoffman, though, is the silver lining of that is he has this incredibly deep and wide-ranging filmography to go into. He had been working since he was super young, 
And you can, so yeah. many movies to go into. And with Heath Ledger, it's essentially 15 movies that really, that, you know, you have to go back mm-hmm. and to look through. And so with all of them, he makes, it's more technically, but like in terms of, you know, movies that have any kind of footprint whatsoever, it's essentially 15 movies from 10 Things I Hate About You through Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus. And it's so every one of them then becomes imbued with a little bit more importance or like you want to be able to find something in there that feels unique or that, you know, feels of a piece with this, you know, great young actor who died too soon. And the frustrating thing about the four feathers is it's really hard to do that with this movie. I don't know what I'm supposed to take away from this as a Heath Ledger movie. Do you know what I mean? And I mean, it it goes down to, I think, the writing of the character, too. Like, th- there's something about the three headliners of this movie that it feels like they were cast solely based on their resume and, like, what, like, their trajectory was seen to be and not, you know, their rightness for the roles or, like, the interestingness of the roles that they could yeah. have uh, contributed to that. And you almost feel it more so with, Heath Ledger, and it's because of that whole, you know, they're trying to figure out where he fits yes. in as this promising talent, and you know, it's and of course, like, he's the lead of the movie, like, the yes. has the most screen time, so it's like, of course that's partly why you feel it the most. Yeah, but. Like, definitely, there was definitely an investment in Heath Ledger as a leading man by this point, and um, it's interesting, like, it only takes a matter of a, a three more years to really like figure it out. And yet, because there's only so much of his career after that point, it feels like that three years feels like a very long time in terms of like, ah, oh, you wish that they'd been able to like, like hone onto it sooner so that we didn't have essentially 2002, 2003, 2004 with like, nothing really to show for it unless you're a big ned kelly fan which like mm-hmm. you know n- you know more power well, to ned you. kelly and brothers Grimm had a long wait to open in the u.s yeah too. brothers Grimm, i think was delayed like two years or something when did brothers Grimm open in the states uh i think oh five yeah okay so it was so it was supposed i think that's one yes. of the movies that opened right before i went yeah to it was summer oh five so you're so it was supposed to have i mean as with everything terry gilliam's ever done it takes forever and a day to you know come into fruition if it ever does at all i'm sure you know he was making that don quixote movie before during and after uh, the brothers Grimm. so yeah yeah, always a little sad to talk about Heath Ledger. We don't really have a ton of opportunities on this podcast to really talk about him. This is kind of, I mean, Ned Kelly's another one we can do at some point, because that definitely did have some Oscar buzz. We could do Casanova at some point. That was a Golden Globe nominee. Um, is Casanova but, a Lassa Hallstrom movie? Wrong? Yeah, it's a Lassa Hallstrom movie. I thought it got a Golden Globe yeah. nomination. Maybe it didn't. Maybe I'm thinking of Something. Nicholas Nickleby. But anyway. Um, so, and Parnassus was an Oscar nominee, right? Didn't it get a costume nomination or something? For like makeup or something? Something. something. Yeah. Yeah. Hold, please. Yes. Nominated for two Oscars. Okay. Costume and art direction. All right. Okay. Um, and then obviously, like, I'm Not There has Oscar nominations, or at least one Oscar nomination. 
That movie is like in no way about his performance, but he is just like incredible. Yes. That that also felt like even though, you know, he's not the story, like even to the extent where it's like you kind of come away talking about the joke of Julianne Moore playing Joan Baez more so than you yeah. do Heath Ledger's performance. But it was still like really exciting because it felt like he was doing the exact type of vibe role, uh, yeah. you know, the thing that he should be doing. Yep. And uh, you look at even in that span Candy, which is not a movie that had Oscar buzz, that was the one with him and Abby Cornish, and they're playing uh, drug addicts, which is, you know, there's a pall over that, I think, for a few reasons, one of which being, I believe, he and Abby Cornish had a relationship on the heels of his relationship with Michelle Williams breaking up, and mm. also, obviously, the the uh, subject matter of Candy after his death feels like it sort of casts a pall over that movie. But regardless, I think he's really, really very good in that movie. I don't think that's a movie that anybody needs to like drop everything and go find, but I think it's a really good performance that he gives. I think he and Cornish are both good together in that. And again, it's one of those things where it's like every single movie, because there's so few of them, you want to be able to, you know, get something, get something of his career out of it. Anyway, we also have like nothing we can talk about in terms of like awards ephemera for this movie because I it feel got like nothing. this got forgotten. Yeah. Immediately. Like it is a little surprising that, you know, you don't see some stray nomination or something for like Robert Richardson or like it it could have been like costumes or something from some guild or whatever, but like there's nothing. And I think it's partly because a, this movie was dead on arrival at TIFF. Like, we're we're priming for this year's TIFF. And, like, there's... We've talked in the past about movies that, like, show up and, like, either have a gala or a big premiere there and, like, kind of crater. And it's, it's a tough festival for a movie to premiere at because, like, if you're bad... Yeah. Like, and you get bad reviews and such, like, the movie is pretty dead right away. Like, we've talked about... I wouldn't say St. Vincent is one of these, but, like, what, can you remember some of the other examples we've talked about? Like, like, like Reservation Road. Sure, yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, this TIFF, the galas at this TIFF were were pretty interesting to sort of take back, take a step back and look. We talked about another one of those sci- kind of recently, Moonlight Mile and uh, also White Oleander we've done on this podcast. But in terms of Oscar successes... Uh, there was obviously Far From Heaven, which sort of broke out in a big way uh, in the fall of '02. Frida was a big Oscar success by the end of the year. In America was an Oscar success the next year by the time it finally came mm-hmm. out. Um, I feel like Antoine Fisher got Golden Globe nominations and and was in the conversation for a while there. And then you have movies like... Joel Schumacher's phone booth, which I imagine must have been a blast to see at TIFF. If if for nothing else, right. then 
What a fun movie. And so short, you could so easily fit that into your schedule when you're trying to make, like, there is nothing that you love more when you're trying to make a TIFF schedule than a nice short movie that you can, like, get into and out of and then on to the next thing. Also, the kind of movie that kind of recharges totally. your batteries when you need it, totally. too, if you're one of the psychos like us that are there all yep, the time. Yep, yep, yep. Um, there was also Brian De Palma's Femme Fatale was there here, Neil Jordan's The Good Thief. Um, David Cronenberg Spider, and these are all just the galas. Like, uh, you, you know, you can't even, you can't get into trying to dig through a TIFF lineup because you'd be talking about it all day. You know, all these other movies that premiered there. But of the galas, I think you're right that like if you are a gala premiere and it doesn't really latch on, it is, it's a bit of a thud. You know what I mean? It's a bit of a high profile yeah. thud, and yeah. It's too bad. I think the other thing, when you were talking about the fact that it's kind of surprising that this didn't get anything for Robert Richardson or any of the craft nominations, is the 2002 Oscars are sort of famously backloaded in terms of the fact that like mm-hmm. all of your Best Picture nominees were from December. It's not just the Best Picture nominees. This was a very top-heavy Oscars. So like even in the crafts categories, you look at – with the exception of – Road to Perdition, which was a summer movie. Um, all of the major crafts nominees were December movies. So you look at cinematography, Road to Perdition won, but it's Chicago, Far From Heaven, which was earlier fall, but Gangs of New York, The Pianist. Art direction, Chicago, Frida, Gangs of New York, Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, and then Road to Perdition. So it's like four December movies and Road to Perdition. Costume design, Chicago, Frida, Gangs of New York, The Hours, The Pianist, all December. Um, Frida was December, right? I'm not making that up. Uh, I'm not sure. I don't think it was December, but like we've talked a lot. No, late October. How, like, late October. But that was a late yeah, break. Salma Hayek like, was the hardest working person yes. in show business during that Oscar campaign. It and feels... Like, this is this is the thing I was going to say about Far From Heaven is like, Far From Heaven is the outlier in that it opens earlier than some of those and you almost wonder because like, Far From Heaven is still a movie that they talk about that like, it's surprising Oscar didn't go for it more and like Maybe, maybe not. Like, you could say that about, like, it's a Todd Haynes thing. But, like, is it also because it came out in October or November, whenever it came out? In early November. You know, like, it was kind of old news. Well, it's interesting. So, look at Frida and Far From Heaven next to each other. Frida opens October 25th wide, and Far From Heaven opens November 8th. After both of them playing festivals and whatnot. Uh, Far From Heaven had the bigger buzz early. There was big, huge buzz in terms of Julianne Moore and also all of the visual design aspects of it and Dennis Quaid and Patricia Clarkson and Best Picture and Todd Haynes. And all of that was big buzz coming out of the festivals. And Frida was a lot slower burn. And it was Salma Hayek pounding the pavement on it. That's why I think I kind of think of it as a later year release, because I don't think people were really talking about Frida until like January, February kind of in that year. And so, Mm -hmm. uh, it's the difference of are you going to get a big splash early and then hope you can hold on while this unusually December heavy lineup, you know, ravages your chances? Or is it better for you to open a little smaller and more quietly and then have this, the narrative of, you know, building momentum and this, you know, movie star 
really working the every room that she's in to get this movie nominated and ultimately I think they probably had around the same number of nominations. Frida, Frida had six and had Far six From Heaven had four. had four. Yes, exactly. But ultimately, I think Frida comes out of that year's Oscars a bigger winner. It wins two Oscars. Far From Heaven doesn't win anything, right? No. No. So ultimately, is it a story of momentum? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. But like so, the type of effort that specifically Salma Hayek put behind Frida is what it took to break through in all of those late releasing movies. It's kind of wild to me. Like if a Chicago and the Hours opened December 27th, not even Christmas. Um if a movie opened uh, when a movie opens in like the Christmas to New Year's window, like maybe one thing will break through, but like largely we would consider that bad strategy for a movie now. Well, I, and I think one of the considerations there was people want studios wanted to get as far away from the Lord of the Rings while still being in December as possible. Lord of the Rings and Gangs of New York too, because it's like yeah. Gangs of New York was a wide release, but like it was going to pull in that art house crowd. It had over a year's worth of anticipation behind it because it yep. was delayed. And they both opened slightly before Christmas. Yep. And so they're like, well, how can we get the late December perch while still not being totally steamrolled by these two movies? And it was, well, okay, so open a little bit after Christmas and have this, you know... I guess New Year's holiday weekend to yourself. And plus, but I think both of those movies were committed to doing for, to playing the long game. And yeah. ultimately it worked out for both of them. But like you look at the nomination totals at this Oscars, Chicago had 13 gangs of New York, 10, the hours had nine, the pianist had seven. Uh, and then Lord of the Rings had six along with Frida and road to perdition. And it was very, very few movies were in that like two nominee range. Right. And mm -hmm. there just wasn't a whole lot left for everybody else. Not that the Four Feathers was going to be much of a consideration anyway, but it really or was. Or do I think that it like deserves to be in? Those no, kind of I don't think so either. It's right, just right, right. Given what the movie is, it's surprising it's not there. It's surprising there isn't a cinematography, like even a precursor for cinematography or something, right. and. And yes, I think I think that's probably right. But anyway, better for everybody that that was not the case. Um, is there much to say about Shakar Kapoor beyond the other the two Elizabeth movies that he directed? It was such a big splash with Elizabeth in 1998. Gets a Best Picture nomination. He does not get the director, director. nomination. That goes to Peter Weir for Truman Show. Right, correct. Um, and then I think somewhat surprisingly when Elizabeth the Golden Age comes out in 07, I think a lot of people, myself included, were like, I don't know, it's a sequel yeah. to a costume drama. Is that really going to bring in, you know, Oscar attention? Have they not really moved on? Like, Kate Blanchett is in, you know, I'm not there this year. And and there are other there are other places for this attention to go. And ultimately it manages to grind out a nomination for Cate Blanchett and gets a win 
in costume design for Alexandra Byrne. So, mm-hmm. and then we don't hear it's from Shakar Kapoor not again. Well reviewed. No, it's a, a million times more campy. So yes. it's like it does have a slightly different vibe to it. I need to. I I should maybe rewatch it because I've been told you, that like if you're taking if you watch it outside the context of that Oscar year and what people expected it to be, which like people treated it like it was kind of trash at the time, but it's like it's actually. Yeah kind of intending to be this kind of like camp spectacle of it you can have a good time but yeah there was definitely kind of people looking down their nose at that movie at that time um whereas like both of the elizabeths are like palace intrigue movies um and i think he actually does a good job with that aspect of it where it also almost makes me feel like okay so what was appealing about the four feathers to him it's like not anything like that doesn't really even seem like so much of a fit yeah and you know we only have we have this Lily James movie coming out that we could maybe have more of a sense of him as a director, but yeah, yeah. He also does direct a uh, a segment of New York. I love you. Is that correct? Um, yes. I haven't seen New York. I love you. Nor have I. But uh, his little short film in that this was, of course, the follow up to Parashatem. Um, which is essentially a bunch of short films all set in the same city by a variety of major directors. New York, I Love You had, um, I mean, Mira Nair, good. Brett Ratner, not so good. Uh, but like uh, uh, Fatih Akin and and Joshua Marston and Natalie Portman directed a, a segment. And so Shekhar Kapoor's uh, film starred Julie Christie and John Hurt and Shia LaBeouf. So... That's interesting. And was written by Anthony Minghella. Hmm. So there's that. I don't know. Maybe uh, go and and check that out if that's interesting to you. Yeah, he's a director who, you know, you haven't really had a whole lot of reason to think about him very much uh, lately. But here we are. And then also credited on this movie uh, for the screenplay was Hossein Amini, who is just a very odd and interesting uh, uh, filmography from this guy. He's an Iranian-born screenwriter who was Oscar-nominated for adapting The Wings of the Dove. A lot of this is adaptations um, that he's done sort of throughout the years. He was also an uncredited screenwriter on Gangs of New York, which at this point I think you were and then I was also, and I think everybody got a crack at that screenplay. Um, uh, But has written the screenplay for the John Madden film Kill Shot, the one with Diane Lane and uh and mickey rourke the uh he's credited with the screenplay for drive uh the ryan gosling movie drive which is based on a novel which i don't think i realized until i was just looking this up today um (laughs) he's one of several people with a credit on the snow white and the huntsman screenplay i imagine that was probably also one that uh went through a few passes uh well and that's when we actually did get a screen credit for screenwriting yeah he did you and yes. I both. oh yes 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 but together we we shared a yes. screen credit on that one even though we had yeah, to go through we arbitration both wrote the line mirror mirror on the wool on the wool yes yeah <laughs> okay 
for as much as that movie wasn't much of anything, it had its moments, but whatever. That was a really cool trailer. I remember being very, very excited by that trailer. It's when my it came favorite out. Charlize Theron Chanel ad. Or Dior <laughs> ad, whichever she did. She was also, that was the same year as Prometheus, right? Or am I wrong? Uh, 2012? Um, yes, I think. Right? Maybe Prometheus was 14. I think it's 12. I think it's 12, but that was the year of like Charlize Theron being in really great trailers that ultimately uh, produced disappointing movies. So, um, Prometheus is fun to revisit outside of the it? anticipation of it. Yeah, I think it's fun. Okay. Um, he also, Hossein Amini did, uh, he di- finally directed a movie with that movie, The Two Faces of January, the Patricia Highsmith adaptation with Kirsten mm-hmm. Dunst and Viggo Mortensen and Oscar Isaac, where they're all wearing, uh, white sunglasses, linen, <laughs> sunglasses and, and hats and white linen, uh, Yeah, the poster is the a sunglass ad and it's great. Yeah. Um, have you seen that movie, Two Faces of January? No. Maybe you should. Uh, tell me how it goes. And then, of course, the piece de resistance, another one where it's like several screeded screenwriters and also weirdly uncredited the Prince of Darkness on this uh, on this uh, screenplay for The Snowman, the 2017. Mr. Police, Mr. I gave Police. you all the clues. Mr. Police, Hossein Amini gave you all the clues. Okay, so that movie I have never seen, but I am still deeply fascinated to watch it eventually because the director, Thomas Alfredson, has said that like... There was a whole lot of like behind the scenes fuckery going on. And part of the oh, reason yeah. why the movie doesn't make any sense is they never got to film like a bunch of scripted sequences. Uh huh. Well, maybe that was Hossein Amini's uh, uh, contributions to this. Yeah, I don't he's know. pissed Who about knows? it for two, probably. Who knows? Um, anyway, any other sort of odds and ends for the Four Feathers? We don't really. I don't know. Ultimately, I just think this is probably a movie that didn't need to get made. It was made five times previous. Like, that's, I think that says a lot. And it was all in, like, the 20s and 30s and, and like I said, 1915 and whatnot. So like Back when they remade things all the time. All the time. Yeah. I just don't understand who thought, who at Paramount or Miramax or whoever was making this call, like, decided that, like, we needed to have another Four Feathers movie right now in 2002. I just... If you told me that this movie was some type of major tax scam and somebody <laughs> made off with several million dollars because yeah. it got made, I would I would absolutely believe you because this is a, a lot Ponzi of the scheme. other decisions don't make a lot of sense. Yeah, somebody needed to to um, you know, launder money through North Africa or something like that and uh right. they figured out. Right. Yes. Should we yeah. move on to the IMDb game? Yeah, why don't we? Tell our lovely listeners what the IMDb game is. Sure. Every week we end our episodes with the IMDb game, where we challenge each other with an actor or actress to try and guess the f- top four titles that IMDb says they are most known for. If any of those titles are television, voice-only performances, or non-acting credits, we mention that up front. After two wrong guesses, we get the remaining titles release years as a clue, and if that's not enough, it just becomes a free-for-all of hints. That's, That's the IMDb game. Mr. Sure Reed, is. are you wishing to give or guess first today? Well, I'll give first. Why don't I do that? Why don't I give first? All right. Who do you have? So, 
Well, here's the thing. We mentioned uh, before that uh, uh, Heath Ledger made a movie in 2006 called Candy with Abby Cornish. Abby Cornish was also in a Shakar Kapoor movie. She was in Elizabeth the Golden Age, as, as you may recall, she was. in 2008. So I thought, who better, we've never done her before on the IMDb game, who better to challenge you with than Abby Cornish? Oh, boy. Um, Bright Star. Correct. Her best movie. Many people's best movie. Bright Star Rules. It's my favorite Jane Campion. Um, not a, not a bad answer for your favorite Jane Campion. Um, three billboards outside Eben, Missouri. Yes. Abby Cornish and her inexplicable accent in three billboards outside Eben, Missouri. Correct. Isn't she like married to McDonough? In real life? I thought somebody told me that. Or they're together. Something. It's very possible. Let me look it up. That would make sense. Let's see. Because my next guess is Seven Psychopaths. Is she even in Seven Psychopaths? I'm pretty sure she is in that. Um, but I, it is not part of her IMDb known for. But she is okay. in Seven Psychopaths. Um, Sucker Punch. Yes, correct. Playing Sweet Pea in Sucker Punch. Sucker Punch shows so up for three. a lot of that You've cast, got... but like it kind of makes sense. Yeah, three um, correct, only one strike. Now I have to remember other Abby Cornish movies. Is the other one Candy? It is Candy. Very good. Oh, okay, there we go. I just saved myself a lot of torture. <laughs> All right. Other Abby Cornish movies you could have thought of include... Uh, the RoboCop remake from 2014. She's, sure. of course, in W.E. I'm kind of surprised you didn't guess W.E. Oh, fuck. She I, is... I mean, obviously I shouldn't have, but W.E., yeah. W.E. She's in the aforementioned movie. Elizabeth the Golden Age. She's in right. Stop Loss. She's in Limitless. She's a voice in Legend of the Guardians, the Owls of Gahul. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see what uh, Abby's got, uh, got coming down the road. What she's got cooking. Let's get this roast a cooking. Um, yes, exactly. Yeah. So for you, I wanted to pull uh, another young performer of this era. What better connection is there than the wide and various cast of the motion picture Almost Famous? For you, someone we have never pulled before, I pulled Patrick Fugit. Aww. Adorable little Patrick Fugit. Okay. Well... Almost famous is only adorable and almost famous. He's he's adorable in other things. I feel like I don't know. We'll we'll we'll, we'll go through it. Uh, almost famous, definitely. Correct. Okay. He's in Gone Girl, but not a major part of Gone Girl. But I'm still gonna guess it. I didn't think you would get there because we talk about how great everyone is in Gone Girl, but we never talk about him in Gone Girl, and he is great, and it is correct. He hates Ben Affleck's character in that movie so much. It's so awesome. <laughs> um, all right. One of my favorite things, and I love to pull this line out, and no one knows whatever I'm saying, is like he's like, well, my wife, blah, 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 blah. And then Kim Dickens is like, well, if Tiffany says... <laughs> So if anybody, anybody who like of untrustworthy opinion has a very strong feeling about something, I'm always saying to myself, well, if Tiffany says, 
I so wanted there to just be like a shared nomination that year for Kim Dickens and Carrie Coon just to sort of like right. double up for Gone Girl. I think they're both so, so good in that movie. Um, Really a bummer that Rosamund Pike's the only part of that movie that got Oscar nominated. Not that she didn't deserve it because she did, but like, ah, everybody's so good in that. Gone Girl is not my favorite Fincher, but the people who say that it's their favorite Fincher are not. Yeah, wrong. yeah. That's a good way of putting it. All right. So I'm two for All right, two. No wrong guesses so far. He's the main love interest in Saved, so I'm going to guess Saved. All right. You're almost at a perfect score. Saved is correct. All right. Now. Oh, all right. I don't. I'm trying to think of what other. Well, okay. He's the main in love interest for Alison Lohman's character in White Oleander, but. I don't think I've ever seen White Oleander show up on an IMDb game. Maybe for Alison Lohman herself, but even that, maybe not. Um, he's in that movie, Wrist Cutters, A Love Story, and he's like definitely the main guy in that, but that was such a small movie. Patrick Fugit. He just kind of disappeared after a while. I, I guess I will go with, with White Oleander. Incorrect. Dang. Dang. I guess I'll guess Wrist Cutter's a love story. Wrist Cutter's a love story is correct. No! Oh, I was so close! Fuck. <laughs> Fuck. Other Patrick Pugit movies you could have guessed. He's in that ashtray of a movie, Spun. He sure. Is in, <laughs> he's in We Bought a Zoo, a movie that we yeah. should probably do soon. He's yep. in Queen of Earth. He's also one of the uh, many, uh, you know, clean-cut men of First Man. He's one of Claire Foy's bunch of boys. Oh, I totally forgot that. Wow. Is he the one that dies first? No. Isn't it David Harbour who dies? Am I wrong? I should rewatch First Man. First Man's a good movie. David Harbour's in that movie, right? I'm not misremembering. I feel like he does. It would make utter sense if David Harbour is in that movie. Yeah, I don't know. Let me know, Gary's, if I'm wrong on that one. But yes, okay, all right. So I came close to a perfect score on Fugit. All right. Almost Uh, perfect. I think that's our episode. That is our episode. It's our episode. If you want more of This Had Oscar Buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at thishadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow us on Twitter at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Joe, where can the listeners find more of you? Twitter and letterboxed at Joe Reed, Reed spelled R E I D. Uh, same for me, Twitter, Letterbox, and uh, Featherboxed at at Chris V. File. That's F-E-E-I-L. We would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate, like, and review us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever else you get your podcasts. Five-star review in particular really helps us out with Apple Podcast visibility, so don't send us feathers in a little box. Send us a review in the comment box. That's all for this week. We hope we hope you will be back next week for more buzz. Yeah.